we're going to look at our next section in the book of Acts. Uh, if you would like to turn there, uh, you can turn to chapter 23. Uh, through my life, uh, so far, um, I have never been known as an angry man. Okay, so far. I don't know what the future will hold, but I know I'm like you. Our propensity toward uh, sinfulness is great. And uh, like I've said many times, the germ of every sin is within me. But so far, I've never been known as an angry man who has a temper. And so I vividly remember the few times in my life where I feel like I lost it. And uh, one time was in college where uh, one of my roommate's friends did the college radio show. And he was being very sarcastic in his radio show and very cruel and demeaning to uh, a very sensitive subject. And I remember I heard it, and then I went home, and he's there a little while later, and I just, I won't repeat what I said. It was not good and not constructive at all, but I vividly remember the name I called him, and then how I explained that he was actually that name. Um, And so I remember that was one of the few times that I feel like I've lost it. I lost it out of anger or frustration, whatever we want to call it. And many times with anger, we call it different things because we really don't want to admit it's anger or hate. And we just say, well, I'm just a little frustrated. Well, it's really just a little bit of hate, a little bit of anger. Uh, For some of you, this is the issue that you are faced with every single day. Uh, you, uh, You have that in you, and you would describe yourself as an angry person. And hopefully you see God working in you in that area of your life. As we look at this passage in Acts, we'll look at a crowd that is extremely angry and hateful. And they devote themselves to murder. So much so, they'll say, they say, we won't even eat or drink until we kill Paul. But let's real quick just jump through a few things in Acts as we get toward the end. After this, we have probably two more passages that we'll look at on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, we have the outline of the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's where we're getting. uh, The end of the earth as Paul is on his way to Rome. Uh, Acts 9, 15 through 16, uh, it says, The Lord said to him, this is uh, Jesus communicating to Paul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul is sent, and we've read about his, uh, his conversion in chapter 9, his three missionary journeys. Now he is reporting to a lot of leaders because in the Roman Empire, a lot of leaders because he's in trouble. And the Jews are to the point that they just want to murder him. And that's the best thing to do. And so their end, their fix is, we just hate him enough, it'll make our life better. And we destroy him, it'll make our life better. 
And so in verse 23, uh, verse 11, right before the little passage that I'll read, it says, The following night the Lord stood by and said, uh, Take courage, speaking to Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And Paul knows where he's going, uh, and he is heading toward Rome. Though, as we'll see, it is not the way and the means of travel that he would like it to be. Let me read uh, Acts chapter 23, and I'll just read verses 12 through 15. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot, bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So their plan is, uh, they're not going to eat or drink until they kill him. And they're saying, why don't you go and get him and move him to another place, and we're just going to ambush him. So to just be very simple, and we will just rid the world of him. Imagine Paul. This is a man who uh, has a history of being hated, uh, but not because he has done horrible things. He's hated because he's telling people, about the promises of Jesus. And it offends their view of life. It offends what they value. And in their struggle, instead of choosing humility and listening and processing through it, uh, they choose to attack. And they choose the path of anger and hatred. Hatred as a way of ambushing our whole person. If you've been in that, I think all of you have uh, been in that uh, place where you start to feel angry and you, you feel it physically swell within you. And you feel like you just have to get it out. That yelling and screaming somehow is going to help and be constructive and somehow make the other person soft. And they're going to listen and say, you know what, that yelling and screaming and your hatred just is helpful to me. I feel like I want to transform my life. Nowhere will that ever happen. But isn't it shocking that somehow we think this is going to help us? Hatred is like a stomach that's never full. Hatred seeks to devour the other person or persons or group but it will also devour you in your anger and hatred. Hatred seeks self-righteous vengeance. Hatred does not seek redemption. When the emotion of hatred begins to fuel your heart, it is good to search why this is so. Why is this in you? Uh, I should mention that uh, anger and anger is not always wrong. There's a righteous anger where we're angry at sin and people's sinful decisions. But 
I think the more common anger that we experience is along the lines of hatred. And it's self-righteous. Because somehow we've been hurt by something. Hatred, this shows our sickness as people. It feels good. Anger and frustration feel like we're in control and have a mission. And we're powerful and at Now, finally, someone will listen to us. And we're tempted to fuel the fire, to gather more people into our mission, create more victims and casualties, do more destruction because it feels good. I think hatred can create a mob on a mission like no other sin. You get people that are angry about something, and you can get stuff done. In the book, White Oleander, the author says, isn't it funny? I'm enjoying my hatred so much more than I ever enjoyed love. Love is temperamental, tiring, and makes demands. Love uses you, changes its mind. But hatred, now that's something you can use. Sculpt, wield, it's hard or soft. Whenever you need it, love humiliates you, but hatred cradles you. And if we've felt that sickness within us, we know what the author is talking about. And this is what's happening in this mob. Their seething hatred is overtaking them. Anger is listed as one of the evils in uh, Galatians chapter 5 before uh, Paul uh, lists out the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about fits of anger. But then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We need a transformation to be people that have this characteristic of the Spirit of God. Uh, And we need a complete transformation. We do not need the message of, you're an angry person? Well, stop being angry. Now let's go on to the next thing. That's not really going to help. But what we need are the people around us to ask us really good probing questions. Why do you feel like your anger is accomplishing something? Why do you think in that situation... Yelling or screaming or being hateful is the best way. Or why do you think in that situation being passive-aggressive? Because that can be anger and hate also. Why do you think in the midst of that, that's the best thing to do? And if you have a pattern of that, then is it getting the result that you want? Many times with anger, it's, uh, it's so much a part of us that we think uh, this is the easiest way, the easiest path to take when we're hurt or something is wrong. But you look back at the pattern of your life, I guarantee it has not accomplished what you would like it to accomplish. And it's probably done more destruction to yourself than you even realize. More destruction to relationships and the people around you. Because anger 
and hate isolate. And who do they isolate? If you are the one who is anger, angry and hateful, it will isolate you. If you are the one who's receiving it from someone else, you will choose to be isolated. And you will choose to move away from people because it's too hard. The only real healing of a hateful heart is repentance. And trusting in the one who had every right to hate, but responded with love and truth. And this is done in a life of repentance. A life of faith in the Redeemer, Jesus. As Paul uh, is saved by, uh, he's saved so he's not attacked by this mob. Uh, Soldiers are sent, a significant amount of soldiers to keep Paul safe. And this mob does not kill him. Paul is transferred to uh, Felix, the governor in Caesarea. By night and heavy guard. Paul is granted a hearing before Felix. Uh, Felix is really an interesting person. He is a governor, uh, but he was born a slave, uh, which was rare ever for a slave to become a leader in Rome. He and his brother were born slaves. His, his, uh, his brother Apollos uh, grew uh, serving in the Roman in Roman houses and served Claudius, another emperor. Felix became the first slave in history to ever become a governor of a Roman province. He was governor from 52 AD to 59 AD. And his rule ended when he showed himself incompetent to handle riots and violence. (laughs) He was incompetent to handle other people's anger. He was described as one one who exercised the prerogatives of a king with the spirit of a slave. You see how destructive that can be. So Paul is accused. He's brought before Felix. The accusations against Paul are simply three things. Causing political riots. uh, Promoting religious heresy. That's what the Jews are mostly concerned about. But they just want him killed for any reason. And desecration of the temple. And that's just a misunderstanding. Paul responds to these, and he is wise enough to know that this tri- what this trial is really about. The real trial is not what uh, Paul, it is not about Paul, but it is about the claims of Jesus that Paul is promoting. The claim that this Jesus Uh, rose again. Which means when that is told to people who believe that they are ultimately the ones in charge and ultimately powerful, when they are told there's a resurrection and there's a new life here and forever, their level of power then is not ultimate in the way that they feel like it is. One author says, Paul is the classic example of the early Christian who has woven resurrection so thoroughly into his thinking and practice that if you take it away, the whole thing unravels in your hands. And this is what Paul's doing. He's proclaiming the resurrection. Paul's response was respectful in tone, even though he's before people. 
who don't trust him and at some level hate him. It's a real lesson in self-control. And he's on trial because of the resurrection. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 20 and 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Verse 15, there is is to be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. 23.8, it is with respect to the hope in the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. What's the key issue? The resurrection. Because it is so threatening to those at this time who are in power. If we're honest, there's a part of us, if we don't see the blessing of the resurrection, there's a part of us that thinks it is threatening. Because there's something uh, in the way that we want to frame our life when we understand there's a resurrection and there's a God and there's someone who died for you, that it changes your life. And it changes things like your anger and your hatred. It changes things like uh, the, the sinful passions that you have that drive you. And the idea of pleasure that you live for, the resurrection changes those. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. The resurrection put all things in a new place. What has been known as powerful is now reminded of its submission and accountability. What has been known as valuable has been rendered worthless. What has been known as beauty has been, not, has been reimagined. How does the resurrection of Jesus reorder life? In the midst of pain, you can know joy. In the midst of struggle, you can know peace. In the midst of chaos, you can know that God is in charge. In the midst of fits of anger, you can know that there is hope. And there is hope out of your anger. That you can be transformed out of that. This is Paul in the middle of arrest and trial. He's now on his way to Rome, the place that uh, he knows he needs to be. And he is on his way. Not the way he imagined, but he's still on that way. Chapter 24, verse 25, when Paul is talking to Felix, he says, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming, coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Is that not the same way that you and I feel when we're convicted of sin? Go away. Come back another time. Not now. It's not a good time. I'm too angry. Maybe you're too hurt. You're too insecure. This is God in his great love. When you and I are in the midst of sin, sin like anger and hatred or whatever sin that you feel like the one that could take you down. And if you don't know that, you should wrestle through that. 
You should know yourself well enough to know if something's going to take you down, it will be that temptation. And then how do you frame your community and your friends around you so they know that about you and they know you well enough and they can love you in that and through that? What's interesting is, as Felix says this, and as Felix interacts with Paul so many times, Felix keeps him for two years. He knows that he can go down and communicate with Paul at any time. There's something in Felix that's fascinated by Paul and this message of the resurrection. Paul talks about righteousness, which we can imagine is Paul addressing Felix's unrighteousness. Paul uses the word self-control. We imagine that this is addressing Felix's lack of self-control and the coming judgment that Felix is accountable. Those are hard things to grasp. Felix is then removed from office in 59 AD because he can't solve this conflict between uh, the Gentiles and the Jews. And then chapter 25, Festus uh, replaces Felix, and Paul appeals to Caesar. We need the reminder of what life is about, who is really in charge, and what change is really possible. These are things we avoid. Um, Imagine you have a wonderful, sunny uh, Saturday afternoon, 75 degrees. It's not going to rain, which it has been for weeks, I feel like. Um, the house is clean. The yard work is done. You are free. What do you devote yourself to? Uh, one of the great privileges that uh, I feel like I have uh, as a Christian and also as a pastor is uh, not only attending funerals, but uh, participating in them. And yesterday, on a beautiful sunny day, uh, Sarah and I went to Marmy's funeral. And Larry uh, officiated and did a wonderful job. And in that, there's the deep reminder of there's a resurrection. There's more to life. And as much as, if I can be honest, as much as just like you on a beautiful sunny day, so many times I want to be somewhere else. But I realize This is what I need as a person. Just like on a Sunday morning. We don't gather here because there's nothing else to do. (laughs) There are so many other things to do. But we gather because we all at some point have recognized this is what we need. We need to be reminded of who God is. We need to be reminded that uh, this God is a God who transforms And as we are stuck in the habits of our life, like anger and hatred, we need to be reminded that Jesus gets us out of that. God's Spirit leads us to restoration. And to be able to acknowledge that and to let God do a great work in us. We don't like to be reminded of our own death. But this is good and healthy. And uh, for me, after a funeral, it makes me come home and value uh, the family I have. 
Value uh, the friends I have. Value the neighbors I have. Value all of you. And it's helpful to me. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15 says, Kind word turns away rash, but harsh words stir up anger. We see this is what this crowd is trying to do. They're not trying to uh, fix themselves. They're trying to, out of their anger, destroy so they will feel better. And that's what anger does. And so we gather as a people to be reminded that there is restoration. There is transformation. And many times it is hard because it's us admitting this is one of my great failures. And it's admitting that sin. And it's letting Jesus cleanse you. And it's not being isolated, but it's gathering people around you and letting them ask you hard questions about your life and be open and vulnerable and trust them as we all walk through life together. And the great reminder of the resurrection we have before us every Sunday morning as we take communion, we're reminded that there's a great uh, meal ahead, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And just understanding that and having faith in that changes how we live today. It doesn't just point us to something in the future, but it changes the way we interact today, which means we can be honest about what we struggle with. Because our identity is not built on what people think about us. We can trust that as Jesus works within us through its spirit, that it is good and it is helpful, though it is hard and exposing. And we trust Jesus in that process. And to trust others and create a community where people can speak into your life. So as we prepare to come to this table this morning, uh, please take a moment and we'll just have a few seconds of just being quiet to prepare your heart. And then I'll pray as we uh, will come and receive this meal this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are good and you are patient. We thank you that we can hear your word. We can um, uh, receive your spirit and rest in your promises. We pray as we search our hearts to receive this meal that you would out of your love for us, convict us of sin that we hold on to. And you would allow us to uh, repent of that and to receive your forgiveness and to be reminded through that whole process that we are children of God. Prepare us to receive 
this meal this morning, and we thank you for the blessings that we have in Christ. Amen.